Welcome to The Popular Show. I'm James A. Smith, and on this episode, uh, I'm very glad to be joined by Tara Reid. Tara accused Joe Biden in March 2020, when he was the presumptive Democratic nominee, of a rape which occurred in uh, 1993. Uh, our focus is not going to be on the events of that allegation. This is not an opportunity for listeners to hear Tara go through the story again. Listeners have heard the story on the Katie Halper show and now uh, they can buy Tara's memoir and read the allegation there. Our focus rather is going to be on what happens after you make this kind of accusation against a man who is soon to become the most powerful man in the world. Tara Reid, thank you for joining us on The Popular Show. Thank you for having me. Um, it, it meant a lot for your invite, so thank you. Um, and actually, I came forward the first time in 20, well, in 1993, I made a sexual harassment complaint and went through protocol um, against Joe Biden. And then in uh, 2019, seven other women came forward about Joe Biden. I was the eighth. And um, I right after the story came out within hours edward isaac jovier started calling me a russian asset online and i got very scared and then when i was telling the story to the reporter i got i got a bit intimidated and i kind of shut down and so i held back the full account and then in march 2020 i finally came forward and i did reach out right away back to the new york times reporter i talk to and said, hey, look, there is something more I need to talk to you. And she admitted publicly that I did and she ignored it. And um, so I ended up on Katie Helper show and talking about the sexual assault. And then people know about the Megyn Kelly interview, which was the longer piece video audio interview with Megyn Kelly. And um, subsequent to that, I, I wrote the book. Um, and so the summer that I came forward after Katie Halper was quite harrowing. Um, that's when Biden's campaign enacted his public relations machine kind of app. And he spent about 2.2 million, according to FEC records, uh, with Anita Dunn's um, PR firm, public relations firm. And Anita Dunn um, is now the senior White House advisor. She um, was the founder of Time's Up, unfortunately. Yeah. So. Well, there are some remarkable threads and coincidences in uh, that sketch you've just given us, and, and I hope we can sort of get into some of those and, and, and uh, draw some conclusions. Um, but let me start by taking you back to the early 1990s. You worked for Biden's Senate office over the years either side of Bill Clinton winning the presidency. And uh, I mean, it's very, it, we can sort of track um, the sort of changing going rate for this sort of thing in, in that uh, figure you cited on the Biden, on what the Biden uh, uh, campaign spent, because the Clinton campaign in 1992 
was estimated to have spent a hundred thousand dollars on private detective work related to women who had accused Bill Clinton, uh, the uh, bimbo eruptions, as it was put at the time. And really that entire presidency was marked by um, a kind of tremendous blurring of the, the private and the public within the presidency and really the development of a kind of machinery within the Democratic Party dedicated specifically to delegitimizing the claims of women who accused its favored sons. Uh, Christopher Hitchens wrote that Clinton's private vileness meshed exactly with his brutal and opportunistic style, um, referring to the way in which often Clinton's, Clinton's uh, presidential decisions uh, would coincide with his personal interests in distracting attention from claims that women made about him. How did that look to you? And, and how did you kind of experience that period, given what uh, you'd experienced in Biden's office, and then seeing um, th this kind of picture of Bill Clinton gradually emerge over the course of that presidency? Well, you're right when you say it was gradual. Um, you know, when I was there, I was so thrilled. I was part of, you know, the democratic machinery myself. I had worked for Congressman Leon Panetta. I had worked on a um, congressional race. Um, I was trained. I, I knew what I was. I was an operative, basically. And I, I, I was a believer, you know, in the democratic um, party and for everything it stood. When I got the job with Biden, it was thrilling. And I write about that in detail in my book, how I was hired and, and such. And what I can tell you is that there were, there was in the nineties, an atmosphere of misogyny. And that, that happened almost right away when I, when I, I, what I noticed working for Biden. And, um, the brutality that you're talking about with the suppression and the, and the whole, you know, um, I forget the bimbo eruption, that type of thing, that attitude was very prevalent in the nineties and people were very reticent to talk about sexual harassment or sexual assault. And then you, of course you saw the Anita Hill hearings and how she was treated um, on the, on the Hill. It was pretty brutal. Right. Yeah. So um, it was a gradual awakening and then a sharp awakening, of course, when I was assaulted. And um, and then it wasn't just the assault itself, but it was losing my career because I tried to get help. I tried to come forward. And I remember one of um, Biden's staff members, who's a press secretary, assistant press secretary under Elvalyn Lieberman, you know, he knew I'd filed the sexual harassment complaint. He didn't even know about the assault. And he said, Tara, we will fucking destroy you. Yeah. And that was the attitude. Um, so like you have these characters that are still with Biden, like James Carville or mm -hmm. Clinton, with Clinton and now with Biden. Um, and James Carville made comments about Paula Jones back in the 90s when she came forward about Bill Clinton. Um, that if you dragged a $20 bill through the trailer park, see what you could find. I mean, it was just really ugly kind of vernacular around sexual harassment or sexual assault. And... Um, as a matter of fact, I wrote an article that just released today in RT, an op-ed, and did a, some, a video talk with Juanita Broderick, who was raped by Bill Clinton, brutally raped. Mm -hmm. And um, there's a deposition, still sealed, and it they can't get it released. She's tried very hard that describes exactly what Bill Clinton did 
and it's just been locked away. But she is very credible. And talking to her, you know, was really revealing because they use the same playbook. So what you were referring to, that playbook that started with the Clintons just carried on and yeah. just amplified. Yeah, I, I mean, look, I'm going to be honest. Uh, our listeners will have a variety of views on your story. You, if, if you want your story, if someone wants your story to be true, they can find articles that will totally convince them. If they want your story to be false, and many people do, they will find stories that obliterate your case. This is one of those situations where our listeners will think what they think. What I want to say is, on this show, we're not relitigating your accusation. I'm right. just going to assume good faith, and, and, and I want to talk to you. I guess what, I'm, what I'd say is that whether true or false, um, it doesn't matter because you're, you, you have still been subjected to the same machinery. It, 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 it's almost, you know, it's irrelevant what our listeners think about, mm -hmm. about you. What is irrefutable is the fact that this machinery has been deployed on you and I think that really is something that, that people need to know about. So you, I, I find it really interesting that you, that you, that you kind of confirm my suspicion and, and say it's, it's the same playbook. Um, if you were going to kind of, um, I don't know, list on a piece of paper what they do to accuse us, what they do to a woman who comes up and says, actually, you know, this, uh, this hugely admired democratic politician this is what he did to me. What happens after that accusation is made? Well, it's very systematic. So the mm -hmm. first thing that happened was um, de denial that I existed. So I had to come up with my payroll records, you know, picture, you know, to prove that I existed. Oh, okay. She exists. Well, I don't remember her. And then I had to come up with other pieces of paper and, and exchanges and video, a videotape where I'm interacting. And they're like, Oh, Okay, she exists. <laughs> and so, you know, it goes from there. But what they try to do is at first say, this person's just crazy. They, they're they out, um, you know, they don't know what they're saying. Then after that, they go to um, using their resources, like private investigators, social media trolls, farms, such, and just attack the character, attack the veracity. You make it go away. Like you make it so that it doesn't seem plausible. So the first thing they called me was a Russian agent. I don't know why. Um, that was just the first go about. Well, that, that's another update, isn't it? Because, um, I mean, we'll, we'll get into what, what this whole case tells us about the pathologies of American liberals today. But that, uh, that new kind of Cold War paranoia uh, yeah. about, about Russia, which has been so much a motif of the Trump period, it, it doesn't surprise me at all that, uh, that that's on the checklist. Uh, to throw at you. Even Are you though, a Russian agent? Yet, yet. Um, no. Um, so, <laughs> um, you know, in 1993, there was no Vladimir Putin, right? Like, it, yeah. and, and there was no, you know, in 1993, this was an American senator and an American staff person. And, you know, but again, it's, it's not about, for them, it's not about being logical or even factual. It's about distraction. Like, it, you know, look at the shiny thing over here. Um, it's switch and bait. So, so once you could do that, the, of course, they try the direct threats. Um, I, my life was threatened. I had death threats um, from people 
randoms online, who knows? Um, and just trying to intimidate me into silence. Then I would get messages, hey, if you don't be quiet, we're gonna release your bankruptcy. Hey, if you don't be quiet, we're gonna release this. And I was just like, go ahead. Yeah. It's, you know, people, a lot of people go bankrupt. I'm not ashamed of it. I was a single mom, raised my daughter with no child support. Go ahead. So they released my bankruptcy. Um, they, they tried to say I committed crimes that I never committed. Those were all cleared. Um, I was even almost charged with felony perjury because I was an expert witness for domestic violence. And they were saying I lied about my education. That took a couple months for me to sort out, right? And then, um, you know, of course, I was cleared and Ryan Grimm did a big story about that. And he even called out the New York Times and said, you need to retract. You need to correct this. Um, they didn't. Um, they print, printed my social security number accidentally in the first article. Jesus. Yeah. And that's still having its huge ramifications in my life. Um, I still haven't even sorted that out. So, you know, they tried, they did everything with me to try to make me go away, be quiet or disappear and seem like I did not have any kind of credibility. And in the process, they even went after my family members, my brother, my daughter, my daughter's uh, an adult. They went after her. Um, you know, it was, it was, it was brutal. And my daughter's fine. She's a very well balanced. She's in graduate school and a very um, calm kind of logical person. And she, she was glad I came forward about Joe Biden. So she weathered that storm very well, despite everything that they tried on our family. Um, so, so I'm kind of the poster child, if you will, of how the, this playbook has developed. And they just go at it very systematically. And then sure enough, you had, you know, major celebrities like Elisa Milano, you know, and some of the other ones come out in support of Joe Biden and some of the politicians. And they were literally handed talking points about me. Never spoke to me, but they were handed talking points about what they were supposed to say. Mm. Stacey Abrams read one of them. So the, those talking points got released by, by one of the, I think it was uh, a British newspaper actually released it. I'm not sure. Could have been Daily Mail. I'm not sure. But um, so it's just, it, I think people are starting to see through it because they're seeing the pattern of this happening with other stories as well that yeah. are false, you know? Or I mean, what, what, what you're true. describing there with the, the sort of um, this kind of exchange of um, lines, uh, exchange of, uh, of, of uh, accepted kind of statements and so on between the Democratic Party and its kind of non-profit ecosystem around it. I think that that is a really crucial lesson to draw from um, your story, and I, I, I want to get into that. But, but let's let, let's just um, let's start at the beginning of that kind of Me Too moment. So I, I mean, uh, you, you've been you've been speaking with Juanita Broderick um, today. Do, do, do you know her? Have you um, been in touch with her in the past? I think a lot of our maybe younger listeners will have first encountered her when she was seated at the front of the uh, presidential debate um, between Trump and, and Hillary, uh, when Trump had all of Bill Clinton's accusers lined up. And I mean, this was a kind of such a revealing and, uh, and, and in some ways kind of representative moment of that whole 2016 um, election 
that you you sort of realize that this kind of um this contest between professional respectability um liberal progressiveness wokeness etc on the hillary campaign side versus the deplorable face of unacceptable uh, uh maleness and it, of course it was a totally trumpian gesture to have those women there yeah. but you know it was damn true and uh, i remember katie harper asking if uh, asking uh, Juanita Broderick if she felt used by the Trump campaign and she said well of course but I used them too um, so uh, uh, um, th th there was that kind of murmuring as it were before the election but it was really after the 2016 election and, and we, we're getting into autumn 2017 when the Me Too um, movements emerged uh, in light of the, the reportage of the Harvey Weinstein allegations. Um, I, I assume that you were watching this very keenly. Did you sort of sense fellow travelers here? Did you sense that this was a kind of moment of reckoning that will that will concern you? Did, did it? How, how were you watching that in 2017? I, I was watching it really just kind of more focused on what they were going through. Um, and as a survivor, you know, you have moments where there's things you can watch and things you can't that are just difficult yeah. because it tri it's it, it's mm -hmm. just oh, I use the word triggering and so silly but but it does it does kind of set off memories right um that are unpleasant and senses of injustice what i loved to see was the justice for them i did not know that i would know any of them and i do know several now because they've reached out to me i didn't do a whole lot of my own reaching out i was i was very i tend to be kind of a private person and then even though this has been public. Um, but I was fortunate enough that, for instance, Rose McGowan tracked me down. And yeah. she's been my friend ever since and a very vocal supporter. And, you know, really what makes me so sad is she has taken so much trolling and so much professional hit because she stood up for me. Whereas Alyssa Milano, who's just totally just trashed the Me Too movement, um, stood up for Dr. Ford and then without yeah. talking to me, did not stand up for me. And not only that, she called Time's Up and said she did her homework talking to Time's Up. First of all, number one, Time's Up should never have been talking about a client confidential case, one. Two, they had a conflict of interest because of Anita Dunn who worked for Joe Biden's campaign. Three, Alyssa Milano works for Joe Biden's campaign. So, yeah. she, so Rose McGowan and her kind of went at it publicly. And... Um, well, you know, Rose, um, you, 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 when you, yeah, it's almost like a kind of fork in the road as far as a project like Me Too is concerned. Either you, um, you kiss the ring and you become a kind of subsidiary of the Democratic Party and a subsidiary of the liberal part of the capitalist class, or you don't play ball and you end up like Rose McGowan, who has been spat out and spat on. Um, by Hollywood and by the very kind of respectable liberals who idolized her back in 2017, um, it, it is deeply sinister to see that those those two kind of options held up. And I mean, we, we've got to get the detail of, of, of Time's Up, the, the, the non-profit kind of uh, official base, as it were, mm -hmm. of this Me Too hashtag spontaneous movements and no, so on and so on. You know, yeah. Um, is, yeah. They're just, they're just, um, they're a cover. They're, they're being used to help predators. 
it They're was to help yeah, it was reported in in the intercept um mm -hmm. i think in 2019 that they explicitly said that they would not represent you because it would um threaten their their ngo status is this right that that it would um that if if they were seen to be political that is to say if they took a case against a democratic politician then that would threaten their their status as an ngo i mean this just should blow apart the whole kind of fallacy it's not true it blow not apart true. the whole thing if you, you these are arms of political parties these are not um independent um uh you know spontaneous defenders of justice that that that, that alone whatever listeners think of you tara that fact alone should radically change people's view of you know what the kind of um mm -hmm. what the structures are that determine our idea of social justice today well and and what you said is true and not only that the more sinister part of that that um was that they did accept my case at first. They accepted mm -hmm. it until they said he was the nominee and they said they couldn't because of the nonprofit status. Then when that was challenged, they finally admitted Anita Dunn worked for Joe Biden's campaign and that yeah. they had kept, they had not told me that. Meanwhile, I had given them all my paperwork and all my information and guess what the last question was as we hung up when they said they couldn't take my case because it was a nonprofit status kind of issue. They, the last thing they said is, could you give us more names? more names of accusers, and they wanted more names. And so the head of that legal department wanted to get more names out of me, and it would have been passed on to Joe Biden. And I didn't, I didn't know why at the time they were asking me that. I thought they were trying to make my, my case more, you know, like a Weinstein case where there's a bunch of people coming forward. Um, that, that is the most sinister thing I've ever heard. I'm going, to be, I'm going to be honest with you. That is yeah. the most uh, fucked up thing I've ever heard. Yeah, it's, it's, it, was, it was dark. It's dark. And when I confronted them about it, of course, they, they backtracked and said, you know, you know whatever. But they, they didn't mean it. Or um, they hoped that I would stay in contact with them and whatever. And I was like, no. You, I mean, Anita didn't founded you. Hillary Rosen. Meanwhile, law and crime exposed them even more. They did an article and the editor to the law and crime got a call from Hillary Rosen telling her not to do any more Tara Reid stories. And Hillary Rosen was going around calling some of the outlets telling them to stop. And she did actually try to call Rose McGowan. Yeah. And she wanted to have a chat with her to see, you know, and, and Rose and I both cynically knew why she wanted that chat. She wanted to get her to put a lid on it, <laughs> you yeah. know, because she was supporting I mean I mean, on that, where, where do you see the sort of place of of Hollywood in, in this? I mean, w a, a, one accusation has been that Time's Up was almost a kind of the mediator of a, of a of an internal Hollywood dispute, a kind of clearing out of a, a certain kind of a part of the old guard in order to bring in a new faction, that, that kind of thing. I, I mean, did that ever strike you or, or you, you know your 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 comparing notes with rose was that ever kind of on your radar what she what she educated me about was caa which is a, a very large hollywood agency that's very intertwined with times up and very intertwined with politics in fact joe biden's agent is caa so politicians have agents 
And um, I don't know whether people realize that. And they do that to have their books and to have their appearances and whatever and their speaks, speaking engagements. But um, CAA, commercial art, I forget the whole acronym, but it's the biggest one in Hollywood. Alyssa Milano, guess who her agent is? Um, CAA, guess who her husband is? He's one of the top agents for CAA. So Rose kind of like led me through the who's who of how they're all connected. Meanwhile, you have Hillary Clinton, who's involved and kind of central figure in all of this and really holding on to that power, even behind the scenes. Yeah. She, you know, and Rose has been very open about how she believes that Hillary was the one that tanked the story, um, her story, Rose's story on, on NBC. Yeah. And then Ronan Farrow and Rich McHugh did a very deep dive into that. And then Ronan Farrow wrote his book, Catch and Kill. Um, which kind of takes the journey about Weinstein down. So about how they, you know, brought all that to, to first. But but it, what's amazing to me is that even now, there's still not really a substantive discussion about who Time's Up is. Time's Up, if you look at some of the recent articles, is having all kinds of turmoil about catering to very powerful people, picking and choosing cases depending on their connections and money. And they kind of got exposed, and um, but yet it's still it's still an operation. So I, I don't know. It's it's disheartening because we the survivors, you know, when you are in that vulnerable state where you've gone through trauma, or let's say it's in the past, but you're you're really tentative about coming forward because it's someone powerful. You want somewhere safe to go. You don't want to be manipulated and used and taken to a you know a worse place. And it It seemed kind of clear at the time that there was a sort of micro industry of um, elite careers being created on the on the back of individual women's trauma, that it was universalizing um, kind of an idea of particular kinds of sexual interaction and uh, was also shoring up um, a kind of educated liberal identity post-Trump that really wanted to define itself on the basis of its of its own trauma and on on the idea that these people who are often extremely powerful were actually extremely weak and 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 were the victims in all things so um i guess um like the, the revealing kind of moment there was how interchangeable the sort of victimhoods that uh, that these uh that these organizations presented could be a, a, a couple of years later the the very people who during me too were asking us to think of women as uniquely and universally uh, besieged and unsafe were now mocking karens in viral videos uh, of women calling police if they see yeah. a black guy it, it's like we, we jump from one kind of non-profit project ngo project to another um and um the the yeah, the, the kind of victim in question changes, but the, the, the feeling remains the same. Do, do, you, do you feel like um, th those sort of women that we saw come forward during Me Too um, were treated as disposable uh, um, by the organisations that claim to represent them? 
in general. Absolutely. I mean, that that's a very good um, kind of a, a deep look at that. Um, moreover, in American culture, you know, rape, rape culture itself, if you want to call it that, is pretty institutionalized. Um, by institutionalized, I mean, there's a way it's handled. Um, when it's an accusation against someone you don't want the accusation against, like Bill Cosby, Harvey Weinstein, you know, so on and so forth. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think as a, as a, as the American culture matures, we need to really look at the, the tribalism that's in our country and, and mm -hmm. the division because the cancel culture that you just mentioned is feeding into all that divide. Um, we're, it's not an either or. Many things are true at once. For instance, I liked Joe Biden. I believed in Joe Biden. I worked for him at that time, right? That's true. Um, I even tried to rationalize when he was vice president and I heard he was becoming vice president. I tried to rationalize, well, maybe he's changed. And then in 2019, Lucy Flores came forward and all the rest, you know, was history. But um, I... I had to get educated myself because we're so indoctrinated to think that that behavior is the norm, yeah. that, that, that we are property or objects and that's it. And, you know, like with Joe Biden, with me, there wasn't a relationship. There wasn't a flirtation. I was simply objectified. I was his dopamine rush for that day. And I didn't want to be. And my refusal made him angry because he's a megalomaniac. And he lashed out by making sure I didn't work again <laughs> in that in politics. Yeah. And um, because I, I wouldn't be quiet. Um, and so then when I, you know, finally went to the press in 2019, of course, then like the New York Times reporter described, whenever they would ask the Joe Biden campaign about me, they would simply send them writings that I had done about Russia as an answer, as if Russia had anything to do with it. So I don't know. It's just, um, it's, it's the way I was handled is a, is a microcosm of the macrocosm. So, and a lot of the names I've been called, a lot of the way I was handled is just the way Rose was treated. It's the way Juanita was treated. It's the way Paula Jones was treated. It's, it's I mean, you could just go down the laundry list of survivors and look at the Cuomo survivors. Mm -hmm. Cuomo, you know, some, you know, one woman is still staff who, who came forward. He has sexually assaulted his own staff and he's still governor. And, um, you know, Lindsey Boylan bravely came forward. Ronan Farrow did a piece about that. And she's still being subjected to trolls and she's still being dragged through the mud. And I don't know how it's going to systemically change, except that the Democrat, there is one thought I'm having, though. I, I remember this conversation I had with a friend who's a Republican. And she said, you know, with Republicans, we don't expect our politicians to be perfect. We know they're humans. We know they make mistakes. We know they do things that are wrong. But the problem with Democrats is they won't admit it. They're too sanctimonious. So it kind of goes back to what you're saying about cancel culture. There's the sanctimoniousness or this like we're better than thou thing where actually they're, you know, making the same errors and doing the same things. And um, I think as a culture, what we need to understand and we need to sort out 
sexual harassment and sexual assault, how do we respond to it in a way that doesn't destroy our culture, but honors our people in it? Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. When Christine Blasey Ford came forward um, mm -hmm. uh, in response to um, the, uh, uh, the the proposed appointment of Brett Kavanaugh um, as uh, as as a judge, um, there was a huge kind of um, rush of liberal support for her, with far less evidence, um, if that's the, the the right word to use, far less kind of verification of her story than you have. Did you feel emboldened by that? Did you feel that you could be treated similarly? Or did you already intuit that actually that support for Ford was based on the fact that she was the, the kind of perfect liberal and Kavanaugh was a sort of... Um, demonic parody of the worst kind of Republican? Um, actually, no, that's a good question because no, I didn't. I really thought I would have that support. I didn't really realize the hypocrisy and the, the, the de deep level of hypocrisy of the Democrats until I came forward. And, um, and also, remember when I was coming forward to you, I wasn't sure Joe Biden was going to be the nominee. Um, there were talks when I was with when I was approaching Time's Up during that month, there was talks that he was going to drop out of the race, the presidential race. I, those are only rumors, but his numbers were so low. Nobody wanted him. He was like third or fourth choice. And um, But who did want him were the billionaires and the people behind the scenes, the corporate money. So because he said at that fundraiser, those that famous line, nothing will fundamentally change. That's what they wanted to hear. So yeah. On on that, um, you uh, you you're accused of being a Bernie supporter and therefore being motivated yeah. uh, for that reason. I mean, I I, I think that you, you'd actually supported Elizabeth Warren before um, mm -hmm. before before moving to 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 Bernie quite late. You, you're accused of being a Bernie supporter. You're accused of having been radicalized by the Bernie bro milieu of Twitter uh, and this kind of um, got mixed up to some extent with the Russia allegations the fact that um, I, I, I infer that your your personal foreign policy politics are are basically anti-imperialist uh, and that's uh, enough to get you accused of um, you know taking funds from Putin um, among uh, the American intelligentsia these days. So I, I wanted to know how you felt that those dynamics combined, the kind of th this um, desire to discredit you and this claim that you'd made about um, the about a, a, a sexual event in in uh, in the in the personal life of uh, of a democratic politician. That on the one hand, and on the other hand, the fact that the very same liberal media machinery had been really going to work on discrediting Bernie Sanders, 
uh, and discrediting his supporters. I feel like there's some quite sort of strange threads in in that double gesture. But um, yeah, I mean, you 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 were basically described as a, a Bernie bro who was making it up in order to get Bernie um, made the nominee. That's absolutely fiction, um, because one of the first people I supported was actually Marianne Williamson. Oh yeah, mm -hmm. and was was and Elizabeth Warren. I looked at Tulsi Gabbard. Um, I looked at many other. Cory Booker was another one I kind of liked. I kind of liked the idea of Elizabeth Warren and Cory Booker. I thought that would have been an interesting ticket, or Tulsi Gabbard and someone. Um, I was I'm kind of all over the map. <laughs> the people people were all over the map with 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 their different. Yeah. Um, and Marianne Williamson kind of made herself known in that debate. Um, of course, I wasn't going to pick Joe Biden. But most people weren't picking Joe Biden. I mean, Joe Biden hurt me and then was, you know, concentrating efforts hurting me more. And no, of course, I wasn't going to, you know, be outspoken for him. As far as Bernie Sanders, um, what's ironic about that is I had reached out to Kamala Harris, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, all of them before I went public. And not one of them returned my call, email, nothing, nothing, silence. So... I'm actually frustrated with them. I actually think that they're just democratic trash in my view because they don't, they're not standing up for what's, you know, it's not like I was some random. I have a history of being a staff person. I worked in campaigns. They knew exactly who I was and they didn't bother because I was yeah. too controversial because it was Biden. And um, so, yeah, I've always found that very ludicrous as far as the Russia thing. Obviously, I am anti-imperialist. I just I I stand with Palestine. I think it's horrible what we did. That our tax money is going to killing unarmed women and children. I feel strongly about that, and I have no problem saying it. I have no problem saying that I think the anti-Russia, um, you know, neo-lib kind of um, thing that's happening with the Cold War is just a justification for more arms and more money for that machine. How, um, I mean, th this is just a question about your, your own political trajectory, really. Um, how did your foreign policy views develop over the course of that, in some ways, quite conventional machine politics experience in the early 90s, which concluded rather rather traumatically? Mm -hmm. um, what, what after that? How, how did this kind of, um, how did this combination of, of political impulses that you have today develop in, in the interim? Well, that's an interesting question. Yeah, I, I was always really um, anti-imperialist. That was kind of always, my mom was an activist and she was involved with Progressive Labor Party and Committee Against Racism and marched in Chicago. And I was raised kind of knowing there was another way to look at our history. You know, like I read the people's history. You know, I read a lot of Howard Zinn, I read Chomsky. So I had a different view already going into Biden's office, but tried to conform a bit. Um, but it wasn't as obvious as it is, it is now how predatory, because a lot of information, again, was so suppressed. Like you had to dig. And of course, we didn't have the internet, but it, you, you had to really dig for your historical kind of trajectory. Um, and it was in the 90s, um, there was a you know, because the Soviet Union was, there's the collapse of the Soviet Union, there was other things going on. But before that, there was this, we kind of were able to just pilfer 
Russia, right? So I remember being kind of disgusted by the attitudes. There was bigotry then. And I remember I didn't like it then. Um, I didn't like it how we had that towards um, certain countries in Latin America and South America. It just, it was just, you know, ugly. Um, so there was always kind of in my back, in the background, but I always kind of thought I was an outlier in those, in that thinking yeah. until I found sort of other people that, oh, okay. So there is a basis for this and there is, you know, but I, after the assault, I was unable to get a job on the Hill and I ended up having to go back to California. I had my, my child, Michaela, um, in 1994 and I worked for a state Senator and I still held on to the thought that I could make a difference in the democratic party, but maybe locally. So I worked on environmental issues and those types of things. Um, and then, you know, my path took me elsewhere, but I, um, had always hoped that I could be a good little Democrat. <laughs> and, um, you know, now I'm glad that I left the Democratic Party. So, um, is in the States right now and what lessons should be drawn from experiences like yours and, and like Rose McGowan's as well. But just to stay on the on the left for, for a moment. So in, um, in March 2020, um, the, the, when you, you, you made the second attempt at, uh, at, uh, at accusing Biden and, and went into greater detail, uh, which must have been very difficult, your your case was sort of picked up by the radical sort of Bernie left, not the Bernie campaign itself, as you've said, but by some of its outliers. So th what the attention that you had not received from this kind of liberal NGO institution of Time's Up, you were finally given by the radical left and and Katie Harper had an interview with you on her podcast and Nathan Robinson the uh, editor of current affairs also um, took up your case they were accused of um, cynically using me too as a kind of last-ditch attempt Bernie having for many of us unexpectedly and and and, uh, and horrifyingly uh collapsed biden the, the last person that you thought was actually going to clinch it when when uh, when you had this dazzling array of younger politicians plus bernie uh, uh, on offer um yeah so the, the view the, the view that some took was that these these people on the left were taking up your case as as this kind of desperate attempt to to get get bernie the nomination that he otherwise hadn't earned i guess my question is was there a way in which the the, the radical left botched this as well was there a sense in which they misplayed this hand or they they 
didn't quite look out for your interests. So that, that's the question I wanted to ask. Did you feel like you saw eye to eye with those people or did you feel like they were flailing slightly in the way they took up your your case to defeat Biden? I think we all were flailing slightly. I mean, um, yeah. it was the middle of pandemic um, and there was this thing about just get Trump out at whatever cost. And so like even yeah. people that were very devoted to Bernie Sanders were already, okay, if this isn't going to work, we're going to go behind Biden. You know, so it was very, um, it was more about getting Trump out, if, if that makes sense. Yeah. As far as their relationship to me, you know, you have to, and I go into this quite in depth in the book, you have to understand I was just getting bombarded for about a month by corporate media because they just wanted a gotcha. They just wanted to get me, get me, get me. They couldn't quite get me. They couldn't quite get me to just shut up. <laughs> they couldn't get me enough to just like put the lid on it. Um, and so there was that happening, broiling, broiling. And so Ryan Grimm was out there because, you know, he's a very, I never knew whether he believed me or not. He's a very good reporter. He's an investigative reporter. He broke the Blasey Ford story. He broke my story with Time's Up. And then Katie Halper did the, the podcast. And she's not an investigative reporter. And she made that very clear to me from the beginning. And I said, well, that's good. Um, then when I did my Megyn Kelly, she's not left at all. She mm -hmm. approached me um, and talked with me. And then I decided I wanted to be I actually approached her. I said, hey, look, I would love you to interview me. And she said, well, I don't really have a platform. And then she, Rich McHugh, who had already done, vetted my story, produced it. And, and we were able to do that interview. So, and they're both not lefties, right? I don't know what Rich's politics are at all, but, but mm -hmm. Megan is hard to peg her. She's an independent. And, um, but she's definitely not a Katie helper, <laughs> right? Like, so I had people from all different angles coming at me and even um, Republicans, you know, even Fox news and Sean Hannity would call me. He called me every night for a couple of weeks trying to get me on the show. And I said, as soon as he was vegan, I would go on the show. And that mm -hmm. was, yeah, I, I wanted to ask about that. I mean, uh, you know, we talked before about yeah. the Trump campaign uh, weaponizing um, the Clinton accusers, was there was there no sense in which uh, the the Trump you felt uh, courted by the Trump people? A little, but it, I kind of put a kibosh on it right at the beginning. Donald Trump Jr. tweeted out um, his you know about me, and I said, "Don't use my, I am mm. not a political football. Don't use my sexual assault to because he had twenty. You know, Trump has twenty seven accusers. So, and, and then um, the joke about being the political football came about because when they first were not covering my story in mainstream media, I think it was USA Today or something, had me in the sports section. And I said, hey, I'm not a political football. And then Susan Sarandon made it go viral because she thought it was funny. But, um, but it, it just was, it was ludicrous, like how it was being handled. Um, and then of course you have these reporters that have their own rivalries within the leftists have theirs and the corporate. And it's just, it's a mess. It's an absolute, yeah. and I had no PR guidance. It was, it was crazy. I was, um, you know, my brother made a joke recently that he has half the staff of the New York times and the Washington post blocked on his phone. <laughs> that gives you an idea of how awful it was. Um, yeah. And in the book I write about like Beth Reinhardt, who was just horrible to me. 
And that was my first interview really with mainstream. You know, she called me up and the first thing she said to me yelling at me was, you made an accusation against Joe Biden. Don't you realize this is going to hurt his campaign? I was just like, what? And then she started like implying that maybe I got sexual pleasure from the rape, from the sexual assault. And Jesus that's not so it never happened. And besides, you enjoyed it. That, that, yeah. Uh, yeah. That I mean, they were trying everything. They were trying. It was like, well, in campaigns, what we call that is you throw the spaghetti at the wall and see what sticks. Mm hmm. So when you go after someone, and that's the thing, because I had worked in campaigns and worked for Democrats, I knew exactly what they were doing. I was like, you know what? <laughs> I'm not going to play your games. I'm just going to tell the truth. And you sort it out. And, um, and that's how we went. But to answer your question fully, I think that there was not a lot of organization around responses to my story because everyone was trying was tiptoeing around it so hard because it was joe biden even the bernies you know leftists yeah um and and they were trying so hard to not seem like they were propelling it that they actually helped suppress it in a way yeah i i think that that is fair to say um and of course um, i mean yeah, some of the people we're talking about flipped from making the, and endorsing the most grievous accusation against Biden to joining essentially the kind of blackmail campaign that most of the left got sucked into that says you have to vote for Joe Biden um, because Trump is a fascist, et cetera, et cetera. The lesser of two evils, remember that? Yeah, so... I mean, really, see, you know, seen through the perspective of your story, and I'd stress to our listeners, it doesn't matter whether you believe the, the, the initial accusation or not, that's totally irrelevant to what happened afterwards. Seen through uh, the, the lens of, of your experiences since 2018, basically it, it is a picture of a kind of the entire left liberal spectrum um yeah rowing back on its stated principles uh as soon as in the case of the the liberals their man is the one being accused and in case of the le in the case of the left it's not even their guy but they end up defending him they, the, yeah. the left believed you and then nonetheless um yeah. got sucked into being um kind of damage control for for joe biden, joe biden presidency the Joe Biden Protection Program. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly what it is. And, you know, I mean, can you, no survivor should have to be smeared, discredited, no. have, their, have death threats, have their career dis dissembled, be threatened with prison, not just jail, prison for many years mm -hmm. um, because they're telling the truth. And, and you know, and then to have an, a, a Pulitzer Prize winning award-winning journalists ask me if Joe Biden touched my clitoris during a sexual assault, That's that was over and above beyond incomprehensible and unconscionable. And yeah. all I can tell you is I, my, I feel like it's almost my life's work is to make sure no one has to go through what I just went through.
I mean, it's a case study in the manufacture of consent. I mean, half of these people uh, acted as they did to you because their their paycheck depended on it, and the other half, you know, did it willingly, yeah. uh, as uh, you know, in order to stay part of the the in group. Uh, you've got this this uh, this book out, which we we want people to read. It's not getting any reviews. Surprise, surprise! Yeah. Left out when the truth doesn't fit in. A memoir by Tara Reid. Rose McGowan wrote me the foreword, and yeah. uh, you you can get it in some of the usual places. What what is your message now? What do you want people to draw from this? Uh, um, what are the what do you want people to kind of reckon with about the two party system? And what? How do you want people to approach these questions differently in future? Well, it, it's it's more than just about sexual assault and sexual harassment in the workplace. This is more. This is a bigger issue. This is about powerful people being able to suppress U.S. citizens. This is about the, a power structure that is becoming almost invincible to um, scrutiny or to investigation or to outside, you know, being being looked at. And what it's leading to is a deep corruption. And um, when you come from a place of corruption, you're not gonna have a healthy, happy country. And so I feel like when you read my book, I talk in the last couple chapters about healing and that's more geared towards survivors. But I also wanna say that we need some activism. We need people to speak up, to be bold and speak out and you, will lose something sometimes by doing so, but there's a lot to gain. And I mean, like, look at Julian Assange. He made the ultimate sacrifice to get information to the people that, you know, and Edward Snowden, that was a story of a generation that Glenn Greenwald broke, right? We wouldn't know what our government was doing and, and the English government and other countries if it wasn't for Edward Snowden. So we owe a debt of gratitude to whistleblowers and we need we need more whistleblowers. We need to hold these people accountable. Don't keep electing them. Don't think that we have to settle for a lesser of two evils. The lesser of two evils is still evil and it's perpetuating this corruption. So that's kind of my message. All I did was wonder how your arms would be and it happened